This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, May 28, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sean Harrelson. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Well, I know some of you, and I am grateful for that, but some of you do not know who I am. I am the teaching pastor at Crossway Fellowship. We are located in Linwood, just west of Highway 99, by about a mile and a half or so. And uh, so that's where I call home on Sunday mornings. I do have one of my kiddos here with me, Ethan, my faithful sidekick. Uh, uh, The rest of my family's at Crossway. My wife is teaching in the children's ministry this morning, so everybody else stayed with her there. All right, but uh, thank you for having me. It's a blessing. It has been a blessing over the last couple years to get to know Sam, form a friendship with him, Uh, and I am also grateful for the opportunity to get to know Brian and some of your other elders as Crossway has more recently become part of the three-strand network. All right, so um, I am very glad for that. I want to take you this morning uh, in the scriptures to the book of Genesis. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You guys have had a lot of Genesis, haven't you? I know. I'm just kidding. We're going to the gospel of Luke. Turn to the gospel of Luke. All right, I could hear a collective moan. Oh, not Genesis again. Gospel of Luke, and our text today is in chapter 10, it begins in verse 38. You know, there are times when we study our Bibles that uh, there are big gaps for us. We have to bridge big gaps to understand what it's talking about. Occasionally, those gaps are geographical, sometimes they are cultural, often they are language gaps. And they're significant ones. We have, to big, we have to build big bridges from where we are to understand what the biblical author was getting at. But there are other times in the Bible when you read something, it feels so human and so close to home that it, it seems like it's taking place in your living room. And that is what happens in Luke chapter 10 It is a scene that actually takes place in the living room of a home of a lady named Martha. So Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. It's a very short story. It's a very real story. It's a very vivid story. And just as a way of being able to hang your hat on a few hooks this morning, I want you to see, first of all, Mary's passion, Martha's problem, and then Jesus' priority. First, it's important to understand Mary's passion. Verse 38 sets the context for us. Jesus and his disciples are on the move. They are traveling. And if you read the Gospel of Luke, they are taking a a long road to Jerusalem. 
kind of a circuitous journey to get there. And Luke fills in this road trip with his disciples with a lot of teaching and a lot of miracles. The village that they enter is probably the town of Bethany, even though Luke doesn't name it here. It's a town just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And we know from the other Gospels that Bethany was the hometown of Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. This town and this family are best known for the events of John chapter 11, where Lazarus has died, and Jesus goes to Bethany, and he calls Lazarus up out of the tomb, out of the grave, resurrects him. So this is early on, though. This is early on in their relationship. This family would be very important to Jesus. This is one of not just a person, but siblings, three siblings who love Jesus and come to know him very well during his earthly ministry. But this is early on. In fact, I think this is the first time that they've really spent any time with Jesus and getting to know him. And the home is Martha's. It is Martha who welcomed him into her house, which means, first of all, that Martha is the host. In other words, Martha, by welcoming Jesus into her home, along with his disciples in all probability, has taken on certain cultural responsibilities. She has taken on certain cultural expectations by being the hostess and having them in her home, just like we do to a certain degree. Our homes are, to some degree, expected to be clean. We're expected to provide towels. We have certain cultural expectations. Also, when we host visitors, this is Martha. She has called them, provided lodging. She would have been providing the food. It also means that Martha is a disciple Martha is one of those who received Jesus and his message, who welcomed the kingdom of God by welcoming God's Messiah into her home. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had gathered his disciples around them. He had sent them out in teams to proclaim the gospel, to teach, to heal, to cast out demons. And he instructed them not to take any resources with them. Don't take anything with you. And the reason for that is that he wanted them to trust God the Father to provide for their needs through the people who would receive their message. And that is exactly who Martha and Mary and Lazarus, though he's not named, that's who they are. That's what's happening here. Martha, because she has heard Jesus teach, she has heard him proclaim the kingdom, she has believed And so she has welcomed Jesus and his disciples into her home. But Martha is not the only member of her family to believe. In verse 39, we are introduced to Martha's sister, Mary. Mary, too, loves Jesus. And Mary is enthralled with Jesus' teaching. It would have been really unusual for a woman to do what Mary is doing here. It would have been very unusual for a woman to be seated at a rabbi's feet to receive instruction in the Scriptures, but that's where Mary is. And the the astounding thing about it is Jesus is honored. Jesus is honored by Mary's 
seating herself at his feet. And verse 39 does tell us that Mary has initiated this act. This verb, sat, Mary sat. This verb is what's called a reflexive verb. And all that means is that Mary has done this action to herself. She has sat herself at Jesus' feet. This is not an assigned place for Mary. No one suggested to Mary that she do this. She has sat herself here. Mary is not alone in casting aside social conventions to get to Jesus. And you guys, I think, probably know the Gospels well enough to know that there are a lot of times that desperate people do whatever they have to do to get to the person of Jesus. It's almost a sub-theme in the Gospel of Luke. Think about Luke chapter 5, where a group of four guys do not ask a certain homeowner if they can rip a hole in his roof to lower their buddy down to Jesus' feet. In chapter 11, the next chapter after this one, Jesus will tell a parable to teach us how to pray and to persevere in praying for justice and praying for vindication by telling the story of a man who needs food to host a guest who has come and he comes to his neighbor's house and he pounds on the door at midnight. That was not acceptable then. That's not acceptable now. And so here he is pounding at the door at midnight over and over until he gets up out of bed and says, what is he? Look, I really need some bread, some bread that's made so that I can be a good host. From He's, It's just perseverance. But it is casting aside a social convention to get to Jesus. That's what Mary is doing. And so there is this kind of reckless boldness in getting to Jesus. But that's what faith is. That's what real faith is. Real faith will show a reckless boldness in its desperation to get to Jesus. And you know what? It's that desperation that honors him. Because that's the kind of soul, that's the heart that Jesus can save. That's the kind of heart Jesus can serve and help. As someone who comes to him in desperation and says, I don't care what it takes to get to you. I will cast aside everything if I have to because you're the only one who can help me. For Mary, it is Jesus' teaching. It's his teaching that drives her to him. This is her passion. As Jesus speaks, Mary gives herself to hearing him. It's this passion for Jesus' teaching that characterizes Mary, and the story means to highlight it. That this is what drives her. And this is where the conflict arises. Because Mary's passion reveals Martha's problem. Now, every one of us, I think, has been a part of a conflict like this one, haven't we? Whether it's with our wife or our husband, or a sibling, or a friend. Someone does something that ticks us off. They leave us kind of hanging. They leave us out on a limb. And that's kind of what I think Mary is feeling. 
while Mary, I'm sorry, what Martha is feeling, while Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him, Martha is preparing the meal. And the text says in verse 40 that Martha was distracted. She is distracted. This is a word that means to pull away or to be pulled away. Literally dragged away. So Martha is being dragged away with much serving. What that tells us is this, I think, that Martha wants to be at Jesus' feet. She wants to be doing what Mary is doing. She wants to be in there listening to Jesus. I believe that Martha loves Jesus. I think she wants to be in there, but she is being dragged away by a competing priority. Something else for Martha has become more important than sitting on the living room floor and listening to Jesus teach. Something else is demanding her attention. And it's the meal. And the meal would have been a big deal. Because it's not just Jesus. And if Jesus isn't enough, you want to cook a good meal for the Lord. He's got 12 disciples with him. They're in this living room also. And Martha is probably a woman of means. Don't have any idea how. But the fact that she has her own home, that there's never a husband mentioned in any of the Gospels in relationship to Martha, that she is somehow of she is either old money, meaning she's inherited somehow and has come into money, or she's been very uh, savvy in business. Whatever it is, Martha has some means. So she has a good-sized living room. It's not only Jesus, but 12 disciples. There may have been more. Sometimes disciples describes a group of 70, even in the Gospel of Luke. There may have been anywhere from 50 to 100 people crowded into her living room, that would surely fit the scene of many times over what's, what we're told in the Gospels. People crowding into homes, people crowding around Jesus so much that he has to get in a boat and get some water distance between him and the crowds on the shore. So there's probably a lot of people. She's making dinner for a lot of people. This is a lot of work that Martha is up, up for here. So while we admire Mary, and we do admire her, I think we can all empathize with Martha, can't we? We understand how she feels. It's a noble task. She seems to have just grounds for her frustration, doesn't she? And she's miffed. And so in her offendedness, she approaches Jesus. She wants intervention. In fact, the way she asks her question, the grammar of it shows that she expects Jesus to answer, yes, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Is asked like this, you do care, don't you, Lord, that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to come and help me. She expects Jesus to answer, yes, I do care. Now that you mention it, Martha, I do care that Mary is not in the kitchen helping you. That she hasn't made it a priority to serve the kingdom by helping make this meal. She expects Jesus to take her side. Really, to take her view of things. 
After all, she is by herself. Verse 40, my sister has left me to serve alone. So from Martha's perspective, Mary has abandoned her. Mary is shrinking uh, from her responsibilities. She's being selfish. She's not serving. And so Martha's solution is to appeal to Jesus to correct Mary and to reinforce Mary's sense of responsibility. Instruct her to help me. Now, just to note, this story is not about personality. Okay? This story is not about type A personality versus type B personality. It's not about task-oriented Martha versus relationship-oriented Mary. This story is not about birth order. It's not about Martha being the oldest born and so she's geared a certain way. That may be true to some extent. And Martha very well may be the oldest, oldest in the family. Mary is either the youngest or the doomed middle child, okay? And Lazarus is the kid brother, whatever the situation is. Martha's probably oldest, but that's not what this story is about. I see that fairly often. This story is an illustration of how type A people can, how, can serve Jesus and how type B people can serve Jesus. It's not what this story is about. This story is about one thing, and that is priorities. This story is about making first things first. This story is about acknowledging Jesus' rightful place among all of the cares of life, all of the responsibilities, all cultural expectations, all the activities we participate in, Jesus is to be the priority. And this is precisely what Jesus drives home for us then. So we've seen Mary's passion. We see Martha's problem with it. And now we see Jesus' priority, verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. You are troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Martha. Martha. This is an emotional appeal from Jesus. This is sympathy. By repeating her name, Jesus communicates a concern for Martha. But it is not a concern for her offended feelings. It is a concern for her heart's condition. Jesus is concerned about the focus of her heart. Martha, Martha. And so with divine wisdom, he diagnoses the problem. You are anxious and you are troubled about many things. Now these two words, anxious and troubled, reveal what is going on in Martha's heart to make her distracted, back in verse 40. Distracted, dragged away by a competing priority. What is it that's going on in Martha's heart? She is anxious and she is troubled. Now, the word anxious can mean worry in a general way. We use it that way often. But the Bible also uses the word anxious to describe a sinful preoccupation with material goods as an expression of unbelief. Let me say that again. 
The Bible uses the word anxious to describe a sinful preoccupation with material goods, whether that's wealth or possessions, a sinful preoccupation with those things as an expression of unbelief, of not trusting God. Let me give you an example just from the Gospel of Luke. Turn over a couple pages to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Do not be anxious. Now look down at verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, that doesn't sound like a small thing, does it? Add an hour to your life? Jesus said, if you, if you can't even accomplish a small uh, a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Why are you anxious? Verse 28. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? There's the rebuke. There's the revealing of what is going on in someone's heart when they are worried and anxious even about being clothed or feeding themselves when they're serving Jesus. O you of little faith. So, to be preoccupied with things is a failure to trust. And all of this teaching, by the way, in Luke chapter 12 here, these warnings about being anxious, as Jesus take, brings his disciples along, says, why are you anxious? Don't be anxious. All this teaching follows a parable in which a man tries to store up his wealth and prolong living the good life only to die the very night he comes up with his brilliant scheme be able to collect and secure himself, make his life secure and happy. Jesus is drawing, in Luke chapter 12, is drawing a connection between accumulating and trying to make our lives secure and this anxiety, being anxious over what we're going to eat and what we're going to wear. Almost as if to say, okay, master, okay, teacher, if we're not going to build silos and try to store stuff up and build bigger barns and collect all our stuff so that we're secure. But what about just daily needs? And Jesus turns to that next. And he says, it's about faith. If you're going to trust me, then you don't become anxious about even what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. So being anxious then is not just worry. It is putting the passing things of this life before the eternal things of the kingdom. So when Jesus says to Martha, two chapters before chapter 12, you are anxious and troubled by many things. What's he saying to Martha? He's saying something about her heart's priorities. The word trouble, troubled, describes disorder. Chaos. It's a kind of chaos that comes from stress, 
It's only used one other time in the New Testament. That's in Acts chapter 17, verse 5, where it's translated, and if you're carrying the ESV, it's translated as the word uproar. And it's when Paul is in the city of Thessalonica and the Jews in Thessalonica become hostile to Paul because of his preaching of the gospel and they form a mob and the text says, quote, they set the city in uproar. They set it into trouble. So Martha is in uproar. Her heart is turbulent. This is the opposite of peace. Her priorities are in conflict with Mary's priorities. So what's the answer? What's the cure? Jesus says, but, but Martha, there is one thing necessary. One thing in contrast with the many things. What are the many things? Everything but the one thing. That's what the many things are. You are anxious and troubled about many things. There is the one thing, and then there is many things. That's everything else. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, one thing. There is an exclusivity to this one thing. Nothing else comes close to it. So great and so necessary is this one thing that all other things by comparison are optional. They are secondary. And you're thinking, what's more necessary than food? Because that's what Martha's doing. She's preparing a meal. But when eternity is at stake, even food is secondary. And when Jesus is sitting in your living room, the meal is secondary. It is not the one thing. There is a primacy to this one thing. And frankly, there's a simplicity to it. And what is that one thing? You might be thinking and wanting to say, well, Jesus, of course. It's Jesus. But why is Mary at Jesus' feet? She is not at Jesus' feet because she wants to be close to Jesus. It's not that she just wants to be with him. She is at Jesus' feet to hear Him. To hear Him teach. The one thing is not Jesus per se. It is His teaching. It is what He is saying. That's what these verses say. Now, before anybody gets worked up, wait a second, it's about a person. It's about Jesus you got to understand that we tend to separate Jesus the person from Jesus and His words in a way Jesus never did. We tend to separate those things out. But these verses don't present Jesus' person apart from His words. And they don't present His words apart from His person. Why? Because there is no honoring Jesus without honoring His teaching. You cannot do it. And we like to try this because it's a little easier to like Jesus. It's a little easier to accept Jesus if you can take his person but leave his words. We all like Jesus. We all like what he does. We all like what he stands for. Even the world likes that. 
That's why they'll throw Jesus up next to any other kind of religion where there's sacrifice and love and people first, and they'll throw him up there. But that's not an option that Jesus gives us. Jesus says that his words are to be sought and cherished and guarded and they are to be given preeminence over every other relationship and every other responsibility in life. And of Martha and Mary, it is Mary who is doing this. That's Jesus' assessment. Mary has chosen the good portion. What does he mean by that? Well, the word portion was used in a lot of ways, but it was used mainly to refer to two things, an inheritance part of an inheritance. This is this son's portion. This is this son's portion of the inheritance. Or to refer to food. Portions of food. So Jesus is using a pun to illustrate his point to Martha. In essence, he is saying this, Martha, you are consumed with making a meal, but Mary has chosen the better meal. She's chosen the better meal. Jesus answers Martha then in verse 42, no. What was Martha's request? Will you not tell my sister to come and help me? Jesus' answer is no, I will not. It is more important than Mary hear me. In fact, Jesus says, and I haven't even plumbed the depths of this, I'll tell you. I mean, plumb the depths of this statement myself, and I need to, but it is the statement which will not be taken away from her. I don't know if that's a promise to Mary or if that is a, a sovereign declaration, but Jesus is saying, because she has prioritized correctly, she will not lose this thing. It will not be taken from her. Mary has made the right choice. And what he's saying to Martha is this. If you honored my word as you should, you would choose the better meal also. You would be in here at my feet, feasting your soul. Mary has chosen the better portion. She's chosen the better meal. So Jesus answers no. Jesus always answers the questions the hard way. He always makes the one demand that will break you to follow him. Now, let me give you some principles from this story. Right? I'm going to give you three reasons to pursue the one thing that is necessary. If you're like Martha, you love Jesus. You're his disciple. You're his follower. Let me give you three reasons to pursue as hard as you can the one thing that is necessary. Number one, failure to put Jesus first is a failure to follow him at all. Failure to put Jesus first is a failure to follow him at all. Ah, but we are an anxious culture, aren't we? We are a troubled society. We are a distracted people. Why? Because while we are active and busy, while we are bent on achievement, even in good things, even in ministry, 
We are industrious. We are creative. But we fail to place Jesus first. We fail to make Jesus' words preeminent in our lives. That's the fight. We have to make His teaching, His words preeminent. And doing so is not optional. What I'm talking about here is not some deeper Christianity. As though Mary is, uh, is, is a deeper disciple. It's not some different brand or level of discipleship. It is discipleship, period. This isn't deeper Christian life. This is fundamental. In fact, Jesus, you read Jesus' words. Jesus demands absolute, unqualified, exclusive devotion to His preeminence over every particle of your life. Anything less is to reject Him completely. No middle ground. No neutral space between that. Even if we like to entertain ourselves with the idea that we do a lot for Jesus. Just read the Gospel of Luke sometime. Just sit down if you can, just read as much of it in as big a chunks as you possibly can. You will find that's exactly what Jesus says over and over again. Discipleship means pursuing the one thing that is necessary. So that's the first reason, to pursue the one thing that is necessary. And that is failure to pursue, to put Jesus first, is failure to follow him at all. Second reason is this. What Jesus offers you is infinitely greater than anything you have to offer him. What Jesus offers you is infinitely greater than anything you have to offer him. Martha makes a meal for the master. This is a good thing. But ultimately... What Jesus offers is superior to anything you feel you can do for him. After all, what is it that we really bring? Talent? Who gave us those? Money? Jesus doesn't need our money. You should give it, and you should give sacrificially. And I'll say something Sam might not feel like he can say all the time. You need to give sacrificially to your local church first. But Jesus doesn't need our money. In fact, it's the fact that Jesus doesn't need our money, that's the reason we should give sacrificially. Like the woman who broke the perfume over his feet. Food? It's all his anyway. Jesus needs our service, he's God. Jesus doesn't need anything. God does not seek followers who come to him brandishing their own resources. Jesus demands recognition of bankruptcy. That's the only way to get to him. Those who are well, Jesus said, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You honor Jesus first and foremost by hearing, by responding to his word. You honor Jesus when you make much of what he offers you and recognize your very real need for it. His portion is better. His meal is better. His words are the better meal. You're acknowledging it and reordering all of your life around it is the very real way of serving him. Jesus will empower, listen, he'll empower any pursuits that follow out of that. Number three, 
Lastly, Jesus can always accomplish what you set aside to hear him. Jesus can always accomplish the things that you set aside to hear him. If you are enslaved to anything that keeps you from pursuing Jesus and his words, break it off and trust Jesus to provide. I think God calls most of us to vocations. He calls most of us to industry, to work, in the midst of which we are to love him and pursue him. But think about this. Martha is feeding Jesus. Let me ask you a question. What happened the last time Jesus got done teaching and it was dinner time and no one had made dinner? In fact, Jesus finished teaching and it was dinner time and they weren't anywhere near a town. It happens in the chapter before this. You think Luke is building something for us here? Look back in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. I'm not going to read the whole thing. This is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. You know this story. Jesus is out teaching. He finishes. It's dinner time. They've been out in the hills all day because that's the only place that's big enough to hold all the people who want to hear him. There are at least 5,000 men. That doesn't count all of their families. So there's like 10,000, 15,000 people. And it's dinner time. And the disciples are worried. And they come to Jesus and say, what are we supposed to do for all these people? We can't feed them all. We don't have food. Are we supposed to go back to town? We don't have enough money. What are we supposed to do here? Jesus challenges their faith too. Comes forth. A little boy brings the fish, the bread. Jesus creates food perfect amount of food where there are 12 baskets left over one for each of the disciples. Now, I know I'm reading in the white spaces here, okay? But I like to think that if Martha had left everything in the kitchen and had come and sat at Jesus' feet, that when he was done teaching and it was dinner time, and Peter, because it's always Peter who's talking, says, all right, where's dinner? then Martha and Mary would have looked at each other and went, sorry, we had to be right here. And the disciples would have looked around again because they probably still haven't gotten it and gone, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with dinner? And Jesus would have just said, you'll find dinner in the kitchen. Because Jesus would have just made dinner. Now I know I'm in the white spaces. But I think the point that Jesus is making is just that. That if Martha had had her priorities right, and she had come in and sat at Jesus' feet, Jesus would have taken care of dinner again. Who knows how many times he did that? Because people needed to hear him. Jesus can always accomplish what you set aside to hear him. So be willing to set it aside. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that opens up our hearts, reveals to us where we need to change where we need to grow in our trust of you. We look at Mary and we admire her, but Lord, most of us are far more like Martha than we would like to admit. We are distracted. We are anxious. We are troubled. 
And Lord, you say to us today, there is one thing that is necessary. Help us to love you with all our hearts. Help now our worship as we sing and we pray and we come to your table as your people together. Lord, that your blessing would be upon us, that our worship would please you as we continue to pursue the one thing that is necessary. Amen.